Hello, and welcome to the NLP Highlights podcast, where we talk about interesting work in natural language processing. This is Matt Gardner and Walid Ammar. We are research scientists at the Allen Institute for Artificial Intelligence. Today, our guest is Jacob Buckman. Jacob uh, did a master's degree in the Language Technologies Institute at CMU with Graham Newbig. He then did a Google AI residency, and in a couple of weeks, he'll be starting a PhD program at Johns Hopkins to work with Jason Eisner. It's good to have you, Jacob, with us. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, today, we are talking, or we're talking about a paper got accepted to tackle called Neural Lattice Language Models. Uh, if you're familiar with language modeling, you would know that what we're trying to do is get a model that, given some history of words that we've seen so far, is trying to predict the next word. Typically, we think of this as, or these days, most of them are some kind of recurrent neural network, like an LSTM that keeps a linear state and then tries to predict the next word. But Jacob, you're introducing a lattice language model. What is this and how is it different from a linear LSTM? So the main motivation behind this is to include the sorts of inductive bias that uh, lets us sort of intuitively understand that language does not happen one word at a time or one character at a time if you're working at the character level. But instead, there's certain uh, chunks of meaningful semantic knowledge that go together, sometimes into multi-word tokens. Sometimes uh, you can have other arrangements as well. Um, essentially, just trying to break up the paradigm that the best way to represent a sentence is one word at a time. You could think about that as a sort of jumping off point for a flexible framework that allows all sorts of different lattice layouts that correspond to different inductive biases about the text you're trying to model. Can you tell us what kind of inductive bias you're talking about here? Yeah, so the two uh, dive into in, in this work specifically, um, one of them is this uh, multi-word token idea, where in general, the semantic content of a word is sometimes different you know, in a non-compositional way when combined with the words adjacent to it. Uh, this is especially essential in languages that don't have sort of spaces breaking up words, for example, uh, Chinese, where these non-compositional chunks exist, but they don't exist explicitly in a way that's easy to extract from the text by, you know, just uh, separating out all the spaces. So a second, a second inductive bias that I also cover in this paper is this idea that um, words have multiple meanings. So, you know, you could have a polysemous word that has multiple different, uh, completely disparate meanings and in different contexts is used totally different ways. And we don't necessarily want to wrap all of that up in a single word level concept. So there's others that, that you can envision, but those are the sort of the uh, most, uh, in, in my opinion, intuitively appealing uh, versions of this model. But yeah, it could it could be expanded to other cases as well. So what if I have a sentence like I went to the White House, where here White House is something that has non-compositional meaning in the United States? How does your language model treat this differently than just a linear LSTM? So a uh, linear LSTM would predict first the probability that you see the word. So after, you know, I walked to the you then want to predict the probability that you have the word white. And then given that you've seen the word white, 
you then also want to predict the probability that you've seen the word house given that entire preceding context. But what that loses is this idea that actually white house together, the bigram is, is a, a different concept. So in a lattice language model context, we actually would break this up in two ways. First, we would uh, do the, the unigram predictions just as, you know, just as described. First predict white, then predict house. But then additionally, we would have this second alternative. What if we see I walked to the and then white house, the bigram, all uh, wrapped up in a, in a single prediction? And in order to get the actual probability of the overall sentence, which is what we're concerned with when doing language modeling, we would actually want to marginalize over these two cases. We include both the probability that we get it one word at a time, as well as the probability that we get, you know, four unigrams and then the bigram of White House. And by adding those two probabilities together, we get the overall probability of producing this string as a whole. So then, if I'm understanding this right, you're basically doing joint segmentation and language modeling. Is that what's going on where you're marginalizing over the segmentation? Exactly. Um, in this particular lattice structure, you would be doing it jointly with uh, segmentation. But in contrast to, you know, standard segmentation tasks, we don't have ground truth segmentations. We let the uh, neural model sort of learn which segmentations it implicitly prefers based on, you know, this sort of end to end perplexity optimization task. Nice. And how how do you know which things are chunks, which things you should chunk together? I guess I think uh, there's been a lot of work on like finding collocations and this kind of stuff. How do you hold this way? So we don't explicitly do this chunking at any point. The whole model is smooth, continuous, fully differentiable. So we basically are, are training it to consider all possible segmentations at all times as possibilities and letting the model assign probability to unigrams in some cases, bigrams in other cases, in such a way that allows it to get the, the best perplexity. So what we do at the end to sort of do a post hoc qualitative inspection of what chunks it tends to find is we just take a sort of a, a, a best guess greedy approximation and say, okay, if it were to simply pick the chunk that it assigned the highest probability to and ignore all the others, which chunks would it pick? But that actually uh, doesn't explicitly get segmented out during the language modeling process itself. So you said all possible segmentations. Say I have a sentence with n words. Are you really considering segments up to length n? This sounds very, very nasty. Right. So that would be exponentially be an exponentially large set of possible segmentations if we were to actually explicitly do each one. But by using basically a little uh, dynamic programming trick, it's possible to get a lot faster and calculate the overall perplexity of this marginalization without actually doing each individual segmentation by itself. So you're doing dynamic programming to marginalize over segmentations in the context of a language model. Is that exactly. a fair characterization of everything that's going on? Yep, 100%. So this will take care of the computational difficulty or complexity, but it will not take over the large number of parameters that you need to represent in this model. Right. So 
In this particular lattice, you run into the second issue of even the tokens themselves as an exponential number of these. So in order to handle that, we uh, borrow from sort of the simultaneous word and character level language modeling literature, this, this uh, multiple level language modeling. And we basically say, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to represent the tokens themselves, the probability of drawing any individual bigram or trigram by using another lower level LSTM that makes predictions at that level. And then we're going to compress them into a single unified compositional embedding by using another compressor LSTM, if you will. So in the end, we the multi-word token version of this model does require sort of a lot of heavy, heavy-duty, multi-level language modeling machinery. But the general mathematical form of this model, for example, uh, if we talk about the multiple embeddings per word version of this model, doesn't in general require all of that. So I, there's something I uh, maybe I don't quite get here. Um, the original uh, reason why we wanted to represent White House together because we think it's a different concept and we don't think it's compositional in meaning to add up or to compose the representation of White and House. However, that's exactly what how you're computing it, uh, or maybe I misunderstood. Right. No, you're you're 100 correct. So the one other piece that that fits into all this is we actually do have a finite number of non-compositional embeddings as well. And when actually, let's say we wanted to compute the overall embedding that represents White House, if White House is in our finite a priori sort of ad hoc set of things that might be useful non-compositional embeddings, then we concatenate our non-compositional embedding for White House with the compositional embedding for White House generated by our lower level LSTM. However, we have exponentially many bigrams and trigrams and not exponential amounts of memory to store all these parameters. So we just take in my example, the top 10,000 most common bigrams and say each of these bigrams is a candidate for non-compositional embedding. So it's true that we could miss non-compositional uh, information in sort of long tail bigrams that are still non-compositional. But for the most part, it seems that this does a good job of, of capturing a lot of the non-compositionality that we want to see. And of course, direction for future research is allocating these non-compositional embeddings in a more useful or intelligent way, rather than sort of just doing this uh, ad hoc n-gram approach. On the other hand, frequency-based collocations actually seem like they make a lot of sense. I was just at ACL and Ryan Cotterell gave a talk about trade-offs in linguistic complexity that made me think about this, um, mm -hmm. where I guess this linguists have known this for a long time. Um, I'm just thinking of Ryan's talk because I saw it last week, but irregular forms are inversely proportional to um, word frequency, mm. right? So non-compositional meanings or um, non-standard morphology uh, really can only survive in very frequently seen contexts. Otherwise, new learners just won't be exposed to it enough and won't learn the non-composition meaning. So you're right that there are better things that you can do than just frequency. It's it's not a bad first approximation, I think. Right. Yeah. That was that was our interpretation going into it as well, especially in, in this specific lattice of multiple word tokens, it seemed like a, a reasonable approximation. Okay, so then summarizing again, 
Um, you're doing a joint segmentation and language modeling, and the benefit that you're hoping is that you can memorize some non-compositional stuff in in each of the the well, when you when you do a segmentation, you can non-compositional things like White House memorize a vector for it, and do a, have a better language model because you've memorized these these things. Right. Exactly. I, I feel like doing this joint segmentation and language modeling must have been done before. I can't think of a paper off the top of my head, but so is your contribution figuring out how to do this with an LSTM, like with in the neural setting, or has yeah. this really not been done before? So there's been there's been uh, a lot of somewhat similar work. Uh, this uh, end to end modeling at the uh, multiple word level has not been done in this form before, and also the generalization to other other structures of lattice, for example, this polysemous lattice that I also present in the paper and, and other things, that's really the uh, where the novelty comes. So it's a more abstract, formal way of representing this type of problem that uh, emerges all over the place when you have a certain linguistic intuition that doesn't correspond well to the, you know, one word at a time LSTM paradigm. So then your contribution then is figuring out, or at least part of it is figuring out how to get this to work in a lattice with neural techniques, right? So the complication here is that uh, in a linear LSTM, you only have one input to the recurrence at every time step, but here you have this lattice structure, which will, it's like a directed acyclic graph and it will allow multiple inputs to the LSTM cell at every time step. And you have to figure out how to handle that. Do you want right. to go in, do you want to explain this issue and figure it, tell us about how you solved it? Yeah, absolutely. So, right, as you, as you summarize very well, the key issue is that even if we can marginalize over the probabilities of a certain prefix of the lattice, which allows us to calculate, you know, the the log likelihood and the perplexity, which allows us to get in uh, a loss term essentially to minimize. The issue is that actually computing the probability of the next word is still conditional on the exact history of words that led us to this point. So if we want to get the uh, explicit, exact, correct, best possible prediction of the next word, we still then would need to marginalize over exponentially many possible prefixes, possible uh, segmentation histories. So what we do instead is we use a couple different techniques. We, ex we explore different techniques for deciding how to best approximate this hidden state. So rather than having the true hidden state for each of the exponentially many histories, we have a single hidden state that summarizes or approximates all the different types of information we would get during the many possible histories we could have seen. And we let the uh, backprop sort of decide which of these histories information content to prioritize. A White House example, maybe if you know the White House, the, the White House came earlier in the sentence and then towards the end, we were trying to come up with the next word is going to be for maybe to come after president or, or something, then a unified single concept will help us later on predict that president probably refers to the president of the United States and not to a different president. And that will help us uh, with our prediction task down the line there. Um, so, but maybe in a different context where we're simply painting a house white, then we don't want to actually use that compositional meaning. And the president maybe refers to the president of a paint company or something. So, Holding both of these possibilities in sort of neural memory rather than having this uh, single historical chain of events that uh, standard LSTM holds is another key challenge in constructing these sorts of models. 
And in the paper, we explore a couple different ways to do this approximation and uh, compare them against each other as well. And it looked like the, the best performing one uh, basically computes a kind of attention over the inputs and weights them accordingly. So at least it gets a probability distribution that a lot of people think of these days as kind of like an attention. Right. It's very similar in that we're basically saying, given a certain prefix, we know which chains of words are most likely to have gotten us here. So we know, for example, whether at this point in the sentence, we're more likely to have reached this point by going through White House as a unified token or by going through White and House as two separate tokens. And by reweighting the hidden states that are generated by those two possibilities in proportion to the likelihood that we actually reach this point by going through that token, we end up seeing uh, the best performance out of the techniques we tried. So how big are these lattices? Uh, this sounds like it could really, really slow down language modeling. Yeah, and it certainly does, which is, which is definitely a weakness. One of the actual biggest issues is a, in terms of computational uh, efficiency is the fact that we actually need to have the same lattice structure for every sentence in every mini-batch in order to do mini-batched computation. So uh, that means that we can't only have uh, sort of these, these uh, non-compositional steps in places where we have the non-compositional embeddings. We actually need to have them everywhere because we need to duplicate the computation across everything in the batch anyway. So that plus the fact that we now have two sort of, we have the higher level LSTM as well as the lower level inner token predicting LSTM that allows us to represent exponentially many tokens. It does get, get very heavyweight and quite a bit slower, but it does correspond to a small amount of uh, gains in perplexity, even when you take all the additional parameters into account. The bigger issue is just you know the, the runtime as well as fitting it on the GPU if you want to use a larger model. Yeah, um, we, we very often make trade-offs in performance versus runtime, right? So it's, it's not a problem. I'm just curious. So what, how much is, is it actually slower? How much slower do you have a number? Yeah. So looking at the baseline LSTM, vanilla LSTM, the largest model, which is sort of the uh, state of the art sized LSTM, takes about half a second per batch. And running a bigram lattice of this size takes about four and a half seconds per batch. So about nine times slower. So definitely a significant slowdown there. I guess it's not as bad as it could be, but I, that is still quite a slowdown. Interesting. We haven't talked much about the multi-sense lattices. We, uh, our examples have been about the collocations like White House. Can you give some more details on how you do the multi-sense version? Sure. So in terms of marginalization, the idea is very similar in that we have sort of multiple possible ways we could have rolled out this sentence besides one word at a time. And we want to marginalize over all the different ways we could have done it. And this multi-sense embedding, what we have is we still break it down one word at a time, but we say that for any given word, we could have predicted actually version one of this word or version two of this word. And we want to marginalize over both of those two senses. So let's say we get to, and we could still even use the, the White House example, let's say we get to the, the word white, and I, I suppose white really has a pretty concrete meaning. All right, let's say we, uh, we're going cool. to the bank. Uh, I, walked, I walked to the bank, and we want to know whether it's a financial institution or a river bank. We would have one embedding representing 
each of those. And what we do is we sum the probability of predicting bank river and bank financial institution. And by adding those two probabilities together, you get the overall probability of predicting that, that sequence of tokens again. Okay, so before you had something that uh, looked a lot more like a directed acyclic, like that was a lot more dense, had, had connections in this lattice going a lot more places, but here basically you have a linear chain, but at every step you have, have two different arrows to the next node. Is exactly. That, is that fair? So yep. very a very different kind of lattice. Uh, but the math and most of the code works out exactly the same. Interesting. Can you combine these two? Does that work? Uh, you certainly can, but unfortunately it requires a lot of memory and time because, of course, you're doing now, let's say you have two different possible meanings for each bigram or for each trigram. Now you just have an absolutely enormous amount of things to consider, essentially, and it uh, blows up to the point where I didn't attempt it in this work. So how well does all of this work? You want to tell us about the experiments that you ran? Yeah, absolutely. So I ran uh, several experiments on both English and Chinese data. The English language experiments came from the Billion Word Corpus, and the Chinese language experiments came from a... Uh, subset of, uh, of a, a news data set, uh, Guangming Daily. Uh, and essentially what we found is that in pretty much all cases, even comparing, comparing both to standard baselines and to sort of uh, parameter added baselines where we augment the parameters counts of the baselines to make sure that they're equivalent to our neural lattice versions, um, we see that both multi-word tokens and multi-embedding words lead to fairly substantial gains in language modeling on these tasks. So one thing that was interesting uh, qualitatively, or so to, to give some numbers on English, using multiple embeddings per word reduces the perplexity from uh, 48 down to 43 points. And on the Chinese task, it goes from uh, 40 point to 32 point baseline when using multi-token chunks. And so one thing that's interesting is that on English, where you sort of have these spaces delimiting things already, but you have a, a larger amount of polysemy, you actually see much bigger gains from including multiple embeddings per word. And in contrast, in the Chinese experiments, when you have uh, sort of many more characters, but no explicit spaces separating out the, the different semantic chunks, you actually see much bigger gains from modeling these in a, a multi-token chunk context. So this is sort of uh, very well aligned with our expectations and it's, it's, uh, it was cool to see it work out like that. Nice, yeah, that's interesting. And, and you got some, I was a little bit interested, uh, surprised by what I saw in your qualitative discussion where you actually looked at what senses the model learned. Uh, can you tell us uh, about what you found here? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it was a bit surprising and, to be honest, somewhat disappointing to me too, but uh, after thinking about it a bit, it's, it sort of makes sense. So the unintuitive finding here, here was that the senses learned by the model do not correspond at all, seemingly, to semantic intuitions about the uses of this word. So actually, to back up a step, I should, I should clarify that the multi-sense lattice learns the different senses in an end-to-end -end fashion. 
So at no point do we explicitly inform the model what these two senses are meant to be. All we do is provide two different uh, embeddings for the word, or three or, or more, depending on you know, the number of modes you want for the embeddings. We provide multiple initializations, so initialize at different places so they, their training dynamics are different, and we let the model learn end-to-end -end how best to represent information in these different embeddings to capture the, the maximum amount of probability of the training distribution. So what we would expect, right, is sort of what I described before. If you have two embeddings for bank, then you want one of them to be embedding for bank, the financial institution, and one of the embeddings to be for bank of the river, for example. Or maybe one of them is for bank, like to bank a plane, if that is more common. These embeddings sort of get repurposed for bizarrely explicit syntactic context, almost at the entire absence of semantic information. So actually what we see is that the two embeddings for the word bank, one of them is explicitly to represent the word bank in the context, the bank of country name. So the bank of England, the Royal Bank of Scotland, bank of Japan. And that is the only time in the entire corpus this day that this embedding for this sense of bank gets used. Every other sense of bank, including it's a bank holiday, which corresponds to the same semantic sense of bank as the previous example, all of these get bundled up in the other version of the bank embedding. And what this sort of means is that the model, given the flexibility to do so, chooses to overfit to sort of these syntactic irregularities in the data set where clearly, you know, this was a, uh, the billion word corpus is sampled from, from news corpuses. So the bank of country name is probably a little bit overrepresented. And what it indicated to me was that in contrast to expectations, the things that we capture when training something like a learned embedding are likely capturing a lot more syntactic context than we, we often would like to believe. Um, where we we, we often uh, would like to believe that it's capturing some deep semantic information. And these results sort of indicate that that may not be completely true. Yeah, I thought this was super interesting. I hadn't really thought about this before. Your paper made me think a lot, which is a great thing. And I, it made me think of why this entropy loss in predicting the next word, right? And so if it, so say there's, when you, when you see bank, there's some distribution over next words. If you can pull out the mode of that distribution and assign it, so like the most frequent next word, get a separate embedding for the word bank that only captures, like that, that says explicitly, I always see this word next. You can dramatically lower your perplexity for that instance, which is the most frequent instance, and then just use the other embedding to capture all the rest, but, which is, it, it's kind of obvious when you like think about the math, but it's not something you would think about without seeing this it's it's fascinating right yeah it was it was pretty surprising to me as well another thing that that i found to be somewhat interesting is that certain words there was only one mode and this was actually this actually came out in examining what the model learned so for example the word uh the word rodham yeah you know hillary rodham clinton is the only context that appeared in the entire data set and in this case the model simply always preferred to use that single embedding. It ignored the other embeddings that we made available to it. So 
in this context, I think that we're seeing this behavior where if it can capture it in a single mode, it, it will. It's happy to. It makes me interested to see whether we could use this behavior to actually improve neural lattice language models by dynamically assigning more or fewer embeddings by picking off one mode at a time. So in that sense, even though it's a bit disappointing to see it taking this, you know, as you said, this this optimizing cross entropy in a, in, a, in a way that doesn't help us semantically, I'd be interested to see if we can maybe throw enough computation at it and let it keep picking off modes to the point where we've really gotten good coverage of the distribution. Maybe at that point, we actually would be able to see the whole um, sort of the whole space of semantic meanings represented by unique modes. Of course, one semantic meaning would still have multiple modes for multiple syntactic contexts, most likely, but maybe we could do a, a, another form of clustering after that to, to group them together. Um, that's a, a future direction of research, potentially. Yeah, interesting. Um, I, were there other cases besides just Broadham that, um, that only had a single sense? That seems like pretty rare, like you would only get this for very rare words. Yeah, so uh, it took me a bit of digging to find it. I believe there were some other ones, but I um, unfortunately forgot uh, what they were. That was the example I included in the paper. Right. But um, right, it's, as you said, it's only very, very rare, very unusual words. I think they were all names of people or places. Yeah, I had another conversation at ACL recently thinking about like using word language models to do word sense induction. And looking at this paper makes me a little bit skeptical that that will work like we want it to, right? Because we are a lot more likely to find <clears throat> syntactic senses than semantic senses. And I'm, I'm sure people that work on word sense induction have found this out a long time ago. It's just new to me. Yeah, it was new to me as well. So. Interesting. Great, Jacob. Thanks. This has been a really interesting conversation. Do you have any last thoughts before we conclude? Yeah, I just want to say thank you so much for having me. Excited to see where this sort of research goes. Great. Thanks for coming in. It was nice talking to you. You as well. Have a good one.